Hi, my name's Ryan Perry. I'm the pastor at Seneca Baptist Church, and we are so thankful that you're joining us in this online resource. Our prayer for you is that this resource would not replace your active involvement in a local body of Christ, but would rather be supplemental to it. If you are interested in getting further connected to the ministry of Seneca Baptist Church or to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. Has God been good to you? Can you testify? Amen. Just remember, our circumstances don't define God's goodness. It's easier to say than to believe, though, isn't it? It sure is. Exodus chapter 20. <clears throat> now, if you've, if you've been at Seneca Baptist for more than a couple weeks, I just read 17 verses, and you know better than that, don't you? Right? You know I'm not making it through 17 verses, especially when you're talking about the Ten Commandments. I'm going to do my best to make it through two, okay? So we're, we're going to try to make it through verse 6, but we're going to focus on the first two commandments. And so here's what I want you to see. I want you to see, just a reminder, okay? A couple weeks ago, we, we kind of looked at what the Ten Commandments were doing. And so here are some reminders from that, all right? Two, two tables within the Ten Commandments, all right? So we've got the, the first four uh, commandments, which are all vertical, Godward, right? Um, we've got no other gods, idols, don't use the name of the Lord in vain, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. First four, Godward, our relationship between us and God. The second table of the law is really five through ten, and that's all manward, this horizontal relationships. And so we've got honor your parents. We've got don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, and don't covet. So those six are all manward. And, and really what we see in this is five, the fifth commandment, is the honor your father and mother. That one is kind of a transitional, it, it, it kind of links them both together because to the child... That uh, parent figure is that authority figure who, who kind of um, raises this child in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They're training up a child in the way he should go. They're Deuteronomy 6, uh, training them up, talking about the Lord day by day. They're teaching them about who God is. And so that you see the first four, five's kind of transition, but five through ten are all uh, horizontal. Okay, are you with me on that? Okay, the second thing that we, uh, we or also what we need to understand in that is Jesus summarized that very good, very well for us in the New Testament. He said, he was asked a question, uh, teacher, good teacher, he says, what's the most important commandment? Do you remember this? And Jesus answers with two. You, you, Jesus never answers the way you expect him to. He always, he, he always answers in a different way. And so he, instead of answering with one, he says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And then second is love your neighbor as yourself. 
And he says, if you'll do these two things, you'll fulfill all the law. What's he saying? He's summarizing the first table and the second table. Love God. And if you love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, will you break the first four commandments? No. And if you love your neighbor as you do yourself, will you break commandments 5 through 10? No. And so he says, if you'll, if you'll just love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as you do yourself, you'll keep all the commandments. Okay. The problem is we need to understand the purpose of the law. Is the purpose of the law a path for our own personal righteousness? So if we keep the law, will we be righteous? No, why not? Can we keep the law? No. Man, okay, just, just numbers one and two don't have any other gods before me and don't have any graven images or idols. I can't keep that law a single day in my life. Can you? No, because something always battles for that affection, the love of my heart and soul and mind and strength. Something is always vying for that in my life, and I can't do it. So if I am to get my righteousness by keeping the law, I'm in big trouble. And James says, if you keep all the law but you miss one, you've broken the whole commandment. You've broken all ten of them. If you keep all the commandments except for one, you've broken them all. And we go, whoa, buddy, I'm in big trouble. So remember, the purpose of the law is not to save, not a way or a means by which we can be righteous or good. We have never kept the law. The purpose of the law is to promote or remind us of our lostness and to show us that we desperately need a Savior. That if, if this is the kind of perfect righteousness that God requires, then we are in big, big trouble. Are you with me, church? Amen? And so Paul says it this way in Galatians. He says the law imprisons us under sin. You've probably never thought about it that way. But the law has put you in prison until there was someone who came to set you free. So we, we need that. The purpose of the law is a reflection. That in the law we see the perfect holy character of God. We see a reflection of God's nature and character, and then we also see a reflection of our own character and nature. So now, we, we need to understand, because when we talk about the law, we think about um, the Bible as a whole, there are lots of laws in the Old Testament. Have you ever tried reading the Old Testament book of Leviticus, and you're going, man, I made it to chapter 2, and then they lost me, right? I mean, even if you pass on chapter 20 in Exodus and you, get it, you move on in chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, you're like, what in the world are all these laws about? And why is it that we pick and choose some of them? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever said, why do we keep this law in the Old Testament and why do we not keep this law? Okay, because it, there, there are three types of laws, okay? Give me, give me, let me give you an, an, a helpful hint. Why do we keep the law? Why do we, we, we believe that homosexuality is a sin, yet we eat shrimp and bacon? Or better yet, shrimp-wrapped bacon. Bacon-wrapped shrimp, right? Glory. Why, why is it that we keep certain laws and we break other laws? Have you ever wondered? Because if somebody ever says, it seems like you pick and choose, well, we in fact do pick and choose, but why? We need to understand the why behind that question. 
why is it that we, we, can, um, we can have a gold, I have a golden doodle. We can breed two kinds of dog together, and that's okay when the Old Testament says don't do that. Why is it that if you plant a field or a garden, you can plant two things in the same field? Why is it that you can wear clothes made of two kinds of fabric? Why is it that we can do that and not go to hell? Because there are three kinds of law in the Old Testament. There is the moral law. And the moral law summed up in the Ten Commandments. And if you read the law moving forward from Exodus chapter 20, most of the law defines these three types of law. There's the moral law. And so uh, in chapters 20, 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24, there's a lot of descriptions of what kind of stealing, uh, 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 what kind of uh, sexual immorality or adultery, and what happens when those things take place. So there's moral law, there is ceremonial law, and then there is civil law. Moral law is the kind of law that God gives to His people to govern them morally. There is ceremonial law. It is the way that, that the Old Testament people of Israel were to worship their God, and it pointed forward to a Savior who would come and fulfill all of that law. And so we do not keep the ceremonial portions of the law. Why have we not slaughtered animals for sacrifices for our sins? When was the last time you brought a grain offering to the Lord? When was the last time you poured out an offering of oblation or a, 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 a drink offering before the Lord? We don't do that anymore. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled all of the ceremonial laws on our behalf. Why is it that for a lady in their menstrual period, they're not unclean anymore? Because why is it that if a man touches a dead person that he's not unclean anymore? It's because Jesus has made us clean. He has fulfilled the law, the ceremonial law for us, and all of that ceremonial law, how do we worship the Lord, points forward to Jesus our Savior. He is our great high priest. He is our great sacrifice. And through Him, we worship God differently. And why do we not keep the civil law? The civil law is the way that the nation of Israel was governed. When you did X, you get Y. Here is the sin, here is the consequence, the punishment. Why do we not do that? Well, the, the civil law was written for the people of Israel, and I don't know if you've checked lately, but we don't live in Israel, right? We, we don't live in Israel, so the, the civil law does not apply to you and to me. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Jesus, but the moral law is binding for all mankind for all time. And so this is why we pick and choose. This is why we pick and choose. And there are three uses of the law. Just to remind us, the law convicts us of sin. The law convicts us of sin. But it also restrains sin. Restrains sin. What do I mean by that? The law is put in place so that we might know what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. How we are to behave. Now, can the law keep you from sinning? No. But the law is put in place that we might not sin. And the third, the third use of the law is that it is the basis for our Christian life and ethics. It's what we build our lives upon as a basis for our ethics. So, let me put it this way. 
in the New Testament, we have the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And what you see in Exodus chapter 19 is their Great Commission. So grab your Bible real fast. Go back to Exodus chapter 19. I want you to look at verse 5. Exodus chapter 19 says, verse 5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that's my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So if this is, this is what God is calling the people of Israel to do. You're to be a treasured possession. That word treasured is a movable treasure. Not a treasure like a piece of land. Not a treasure like a house. But a treasure that you can carry with you. And God intends that wherever He goes, His people, His movable possession goes with Him to make His name known. The movable treasured possession, a kingdom of priests that the people of Israel might teach the nations about Yahweh, his nature, his character, and the way he ought to be worshipped. Does this sound like the Great Commission at all? And, and then you're going to be a holy nation. You're going to live in such a way that you will stand out and shine brightly as a light among all the pagan nations of the world. Does this sound familiar? This is God's great commission in the Old Testament. This is how you are to live. This is what you are to be, I guess I should say. And then the commandments are that this is how you do it. That's the living out the great commission for dummies section, right? You've got the Ten Commandments. This is, this is how the nations are going to know that you are my treasured possession, my holy nation, and that you are a kingdom of priests, not to the little g gods of the world, but to the capital G God of the universe. It's the how-to section. Okay, now, that's, that's what we remind ourselves from uh, a couple weeks ago. Now let's look at verse 20, or chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Now, verse 2. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, is like the preamble to the Ten Commandments, the preamble to the Ten Commandments. Why do we know that? Okay, because he tells his people who he is. He says, I am the Lord. What is the Hebrew word there for Lord? Yahweh. I am Y-H-W-H. It was a name so holy that Jews wouldn't say it. It was the very name that he revealed himself to Moses on the mountain out of the burning bush. It was the name in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 where God began to create people that he revealed himself to his covenant creation. It was the name by which God was known. It was the name that he is not just our God but our Redeemer. And then the, the second word is, I am the Lord Yahweh. I am Yahweh your Elohim. Elohim is creator God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first seven words, in the beginning, God created. This is Elohim. He is the one who has always been and always will be. He is the great uncaused cause. Or as uh, Exodus chapter 3, he is the fire that needs no fuel. God, He is the Lord, their God, 
creator, redeemer, and God is saying, I am giving you the law because I am God. I'm giving you the law because I'm God. I've created you. I know how life works best. I mean, think about that. Go back to the the fall, right? God put his people in the garden and he said, you have all freedom save one rule. Don't eat from that tree right there. For the moment that you eat of that tree, you'll, you'll surely die. God knew how life worked best in the garden. And that law was not a law to hinder his people from living their best life. But rather that law was to protect them from falling away from the very person that they needed most. And so God puts this law in place. I know how life works best. I know how humanity flourishes, etc. This is what I'm doing. And I I have redeemed you out of the house of slavery. Verse 2. I've redeemed you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I've redeemed you. I have saved you for my purposes. And here is my law. Live by them. And you will be my people and I will be your God. Are you with me, church family? So this verse 2 is the preamble of the Ten Commandments. Now, let's look at the first commandment. I want want you to hear this word, okay? In uh, the first commandment and the second commandment, we're going to be talking about worship. And now what I don't mean by worship is singing, okay? Singing is worship, but worship is not necessarily singing. Are you with me? And and, and just because you sing doesn't mean you worship. I'll talk about that later, okay? Some of you just... All right. We're going to be talking about worship. And so the first one, first commandment, I want you to think about worship responsibility. Worship responsibility. He says, have no other gods before me. That's verse 3. Have no other gods before me. So he is coming after their hearts. After their very hearts. No other gods. Isaiah 29, verse 13. Maybe you've heard this verse before. He says, and the Lord said, because this people draw near me, Draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are what? Far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So he's coming after their worship. Now, I just want to ask a question. When we think about singing, we think about a worship service. What defines good worship? What defines good worship? We might, we might say things like this. We might say song choice. We, we might say passion. How passionate are the people worshiping? How expressive are they? Oh, they raised their hand. That must have been really good worship. Right? No, we can honor Him with our lips while our hearts remain far from Him. What, what is it? They sang loud today. Is that good worship? Not necessarily. Don't you remember the prophets of Baal on the mountain? They were very passionate, weren't they? They were very loud. They were cutting themselves and, and screaming out to Baal. Was that right worship? No. Is it that they, they lingered long in, in, in singing or praising or worship or in the meeting? Is that what it is? Is that defined good worship? And the answer is no, not necessarily. Now, passion and intensity and, and volume can be indicators of good worship, but they're not always. But how do we know what good worship is? Listen to me. What defines Good worship is right belief in right theology about the right object of worship. 
It's, it's not about a song. It's not about passion or intensity. It's right belief in right theology about the right object of worship. And God determines how we ought to worship Him. God does. All right, go back. I think it's in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, David has uh, gotten the, the, um, the Ark of the Covenant from the Philistines. Do you remember this? And he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant in, and everybody's um, got tambourines and dancing and lyres and all this passionate, loud worship, and they're celebrating. It's a good day. The Ark of the Covenant's coming back into Jerusalem. What a day it is. And I think this might be the day where David is, you know, dancing in his undies, right? Uh, following the Ark of the Covenant. And, and, um, and then what happens? The, the oxen stumble. Do you remember? The cart teeter-totters. The Ark may, be, maybe begins to slide. And what does this man named Uzzah do? Touches it. He reaches out his hand to touch the ark. What happens to him? Huh? All right, all right, all right. He doesn't just die. God strikes him down. Why? Because God determines how we ought to worship Him. And any time that we have wrong theology, we have wrong belief and wrong theology about the wrong object, object of our worship, our worship no longer pleases Him. And in that moment, Esau, Esau Uzziah, Uzzah was passionate. He had good intentions. He didn't want the ark to fall. And with good intentions, he reached out. But his good intentions did not matter that day. And in the first commandment, what we see is God defining how we are to worship Him. Our worship responsibility means that we have right worship of the right object of worship. And so we sin against God in two ways. Number one, when we worship any other gods other than God. Any other little G gods other than Yahweh. We sin against Him when we do that. But we also sin against God by not worshiping the God who is worthy of worship. And what's interesting is oftentimes we go, we don't have any other gods before me. Check. Have you been to my house? Have you seen any shrines in my home? I'm not worshiping any other gods before him. But we sin against him by not giving him the praise and worship that he rightfully deserves as God, creator, lawgiver, and redeemer. Christopher said a handful of weeks ago, I can't remember where it was, but one of the indicators of church health is men singing. Men worshiping. It's funny. God's created us to worship Him, but some of us don't like to worship. 
what do you think you're going to do in heaven? So we sin against him by having other gods before him. We sin against him by not worshiping him. Psalm 29 says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Isaiah 43, 7 says, I have created you for my own glory. Your sole purpose in life is the worship of the one true God. And John Piper says that missions exists because worship doesn't. And so what, why does missions exist? Because we want to go around the world, around our community, to tell people that there is a God worthy of their worship. And that they can worship Him in spirit and in truth. How do they do that? Through Jesus the Savior. The second thing we see in in number two is worship regulations. So we see worship responsibility and worship regulations. Now, I want you to think about it like this. Ancient peoples, okay, people of this day, um, when they would go out to battle, what would they carry with them? They would create their idols and they would carry their idols into battle with them. And these armies would be coming to battle, each carrying their idols. And as they did this, it was almost a, a battle of the little g gods. And God in this moment is saying, don't be like them. Don't be like them. I am, I am the creator God who has created everything. Don't try to put me into a created thing. Anytime we try to put God in a box, we immediately stop worshiping the God of the Bible. Now, we we do catechism at Seneca Classical Academy. And one of the catechism questions is, what is God? Charlie, do you remember that? What is God? Do you remember? God is a Miles? Come on. Yes, you do. I know you do. Okay. God is a spirit, and he does not have a body like man. And so in this this moment, God is a spirit. He does not have a body like man. And when we think about how God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain and to the people of Israel, he does not reveal himself in bodily form, does he? He reveals himself through a pillar of cloud and through a fire. He does not reveal himself in a form. No form given. Why? Because if Yahweh would have come in a certain form, what would we as his people have had the tendency to do? If he came in the form of a golden calf, what would we do in Exodus 32? create a golden calf and worship it and say, here's our God who delivered us from the land of Egypt. We would worship, we would create an idol and we'd worship him, yet God has chosen in his wisdom not to come in the form that we could create. But just because he didn't come in a form didn't stop the people from trying, right? Now, when we think about idolatry, we got to ask ourselves, what is idolatry? And here is a great definition for you. You can write it down. Um, and it, this, is, this is from uh, Vodi Bauckham. Vodi says that idolatry is ascribing God-like power or God-like worth to someone or something. God-like power or God-like worth to someone or something. 
Now, oftentimes when we think about idolatry, we think about, I've been to places in West Africa where I would walk in and in the home there would be um, these idols that they would serve and offer sacrifices to. There would be these trinkets that they would have uh, that had spiritual power against evil spirits. And they would serve these spirits for their protection or their blessing. And we think about idols in that way, but but think about that, that definition. Anytime where we ascribe God-like power or God-like worth to anything or anyone. See, idols do not have to be carved into wood or stone to be idols. Idolatry does not start in a carving session. Idolatry starts when we carve God-like power or God-like worth we ascribe those things to, or those, those characteristics to things in our life, and we do it first in our heart. If I just get this job, if I just get this promotion, if I just make X amount of money, if I just have this kind of house, if my children will just do this, then I'll be happy, then I'll be content, then I'll have all I need. And what are we doing ascribing God-like power or God-like worth to someone or something? So how do we see this played out in the scriptures? We see Exodus 2, or 32, a golden calf, right? And, and when we go back just a little in Exodus, every plague was a, in direct defiance to one of Egypt's little g-gods. Every one of the plagues. Now, do you remember Solomon, the wisest, richest man on earth? Solomon had a lot of wives. And what was the warning that God gave to Solomon about marrying foreign women? If you marry a foreign woman, you're going to end up going after foreign gods. And in 1 Kings 11, verse 4, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of David, his father. The prophets of Baal were worshiping false gods, idols. The people of Israel were... Um, they sent the, God sent the prophets to them to correct them from idol worship over and over and over. And it was the reason they went into exile was idol worship. Anytime where we ascribe God-like power or God-like worth to anything or anyone other than God alone. The book of Hosea is a book of idolatry. It's all about idolatry. That Hosea was told to marry Gomer... Because Gomer was a picture of Israel and Gomer would go after her other lovers. This prostitute would go after other lovers and she would say of her lovers, Oh, he has given me, given me all these things. And God says, when it was I who gave her everything that she needed. That's about idolatry. It's about idolatry. Jesus came to reveal the idols of the heart. Just follow with me for a second. The woman at the well. Go get your husband. You remember this story? This story is so amazing. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Oh, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. And the guy you're with right now isn't your husband. What was her God? Men. The acceptance of men. Jesus came after her idol, her heart. John chapter 6, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus turns and looks at this big crowd and says, You're not following me for me. You're following me for what? Bread. 
prodigal son and the older brother, they both had idols in their life. The younger son, his idol was going off and living fast and free, right? I'm going to get away from my father's authority and I'm going to go out and I'm going to have all this fun and there I'm going to experience life. And the elder brother obeyed his father, did all that he commanded. Why? Because he wanted what the father had to offer. Who was wrong? Both of them. Both of them were far from God. Only the prodigal came home. We're still left at the end of uh, Luke chapter 15, not knowing whether the elder brother came back from his idolatry. The rich young ruler, go sell all that you have and, and give some of it away. And then come follow me. And he went away sad because he, his possessions were many. What's Jesus doing? Showing him his heart, showing him his idols. And in that passage, Jesus is asked the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. And he names six through ten, or five through ten. Actually, five through nine. He names five through nine, but he leaves out one through four. He says, I kept all those. Well, then go sell your stuff. And he went away sad. Why? Because he's broken one through four. His idols. The Pharisees. The early church. Acts 19. There's witchcraft in Exodus. Or in, in Ephesus. There's idolatry all over. Food sacrifice to idols. And the book of 1 John ends his book with little children keep yourself from idols. Now, let me turn this on us real fast and let's ask some questions for you and for me. These two commands right here undergird all of the other commands. I, I will never keep the other commands if I don't have these two commands right. Let me just, let me prove it. Can we worship the one true God and murder our brothers by hate or by hands? Come on church family, we can't do it, can we? We can't. Don't you remember in 1 John, John says you can't love God and hate your brother. No one born of God hates his brother. Can we worship the one true God and commit adultery in our heart or in our action? No. We can't worship him and do this simultaneously. Can I worship the one true God and bear grudges or, not be, or, or bear false witness or not forgive somebody? Can I do that? No. Coveting is the love of possessions and the denial of the one true God who is my provider. I, I can't. I, number one and two undergird all the other commandments. And if I get one and two wrong, I promise you I'm going to get all the rest of them wrong. And that's why Jeremiah chapter 2 is so striking to me. Verse 13 this is what Jeremiah the prophet says to the people of Israel. He says, my people, God says, my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that hold no water. When you get one and two wrong, you're going to get all the rest of them wrong. So, let me wrap this up for us. God, as creator and redeemer, he is worthy of every bit of our worship. Not our singing, but our entire lives. 
That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That's worship. Everything you do, do it for His glory. That's worship. You worship at work. You worship at home, washing dishes. You worship when you're doing laundry. You worship when you're disciplining children or grandchildren. You worship when, when you're doing yard work. You are worshiping in anything that you do. You're worshiping in the grocery store. You're worshiping, when you, you're worshiping something when you fuss somebody out who cuts, cuts you off. You're worshiping something. Worship is a lifestyle and it is our response to the saving work of Jesus. And it's worked out in every aspect of our life. Every aspect of our life. And so, church family, we must worship Him and Him alone. Don't have any other gods before me. And don't make an idol. And today, some of us might need to confess that we have hewed out cisterns instead of going to the fountain of living waters. Some of us, we might need to ask Jesus to save us because today we've realized that we're sinners. And that if, it's, if we, if our heaven or hell final destination is determined by how good or bad I am, you've realized today that you're in trouble. There's a rescuer. His name is Jesus. We have never lived a single day where we have not broken every one of God's commandments and Jesus lived every day without breaking a single one. We broke them all, He kept them all. And He got what we deserved so that we might get what He deserved. Turn today and trust Jesus. Repent of our sins. And let's, be, let's find refreshment that comes from the presence of the Lord. Would you stand with me? And Maybe you need to move. Maybe you need to leave your seat as we sing a final song. But let's pray and let's ask the Lord to show us our hearts. Father, you've taught us to worship you as the one true living God. You've given us our responsibility. There's no other gods before you. And our restrictions that we don't worship you in any way that's not right. You teach us how to worship you. And it's not through a form. We don't have to see a picture. God is spirit. And we true worshipers... Worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Help us. Lord, show us our sin. Grant us repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing, if you